Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. We're continuing through our series, uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, this morning we're finding ourselves in uh, John 4, verses 43 through 54. We actually complete a cycle that we started um, a few weeks ago from John chapter 2. If you recall, the first uh, miracle that Jesus did was in Cana. And um, from Cana, he went over to Jerusalem during the Passover. Then on his way back, uh, had a stopover at Samaria. Now he's back into Galilee. And this episode ends with um, Jesus being in Cana one more time. So the cycle kind of uh, starts in and then throughout these three chapters, what we have seen is um, some varied responses to Jesus. We've seen people um, who exhibited um, basically no faith, despite seeing all the miracles, to shallow faith, to complete faith, different attitudes. And from the next uh, section, from John chapter 5 through chapter 10, we're actually going to be seeing uh, Jesus in continuous confrontation with the people but for today, we're going to see this this unit as we uh, close this uh, cycle where we're seeing this unit uh, where uh, uh, in the verse 54, John records for us that this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This Meaning this was the second sign that Jesus did in Cana. The first sign being the water changed into wine. And um, the, basically the uh, idea in this passage or the... the what the sign indicates to us is that Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is the Lord of life. Three times in verses 50, 51 and 53, you will see this phrase in one shape or the other, your son lives or your son will live. That's, that's the idea that Jesus gives life. Physical life as well as eternal life. And the fact that uh, he gives life indicates to us that he is the Lord of life. Remember according to John 20 verses 30 and 31, the whole theme of John, the purpose of John writing his gospel is very clearly stated. Uh, verse 31, it says, but these are written, many signs Jesus performed, verse 30 says, but John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit selects a few signs and he says, that's why these signs are written. These are written that you may believe or may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life, true life in his name. So this sign, when you see this sign, when you see every sign in John, go back and ask yourself this question. John put this sign to tell us that this sign should point us to Jesus as the Messiah, and by believing in Him, I may have life. So how does a sign point that Jesus is the Messiah? That's the question you need to ask yourself. And this morning as we work through this healing of this man's son, we have to ask ourselves that question. How does this sign point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? And I trust that it will point to this answer that Jesus is the Lord of life. This sign points to the fact that He is the Lord of life. Let's pray together and uh, look through these verses. Father, we are thankful for uh, the fact that Jesus came into this world and uh, did things publicly and has recorded uh, through His Spirit in this word that we have for us that we also can understand and know the purpose of His coming and the purpose of His miracles and how each and every one of us should respond to it. 
through a very powerful and a very real way, this passage in front of us not only teaches us that Jesus is the Lord of life, but also it shows to us how He has compassion. Reminded of Psalm 103 where it says, As the Father has compassion on His children, the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And the very fact you have compassion on us a lot of times is so that we would fear you. You forgive us of our sins so that we fear you. And I pray this morning that as we work our way through this passage, your spirit will inspire our hearts to fear you and also to love you. For your son's sake we pray. Amen. Verse 43. Notice after the two days, what's the two days? Remember the Samaritans wanted him to stay for two days so that they can learn more from Jesus. So after the two days he left for Galilee, the trip he started when he left Jerusalem. And then notice verse 44. John gives this parenthetical note for us. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This seems to be like a saying that Jesus often used. And in fact, this is one of those statements all the four Gospels, you have it. Now if you just read John, it, it seems like, well, what is his own country? What is his own country? The, the idea seems to be that Jesus just left Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. He just left there. Obviously he was not well received. So the idea is, well, Jesus was not received in his own country, meaning he was not received in Judea. Because the very next verse, verse 45 says, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. It's almost like saying he was rejected there, he was welcomed here. But I don't think Galilee welcomed him in a right way either. How so? Just go back to Luke. The previous book from John is Luke. And look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 24. Luke 4 and verse 24. Let me just... Read verse 14, so set you the context geographically where Jesus is. Luke 4 verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee. And then verse 16, he went to Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town in Galilee, like Capernaum and Cana. And in there he teaches and he's going to be rejected. So notice what he says in verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. That's the same thing that is said in uh, Matthew 13, verse 57, as well as Mark 6, verse 4. We're not going to look into that. Jesus says in all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those statements in Galilee. So if Jesus is referring to Galilee, welcoming him, it cannot be true. Jesus, what Jesus, I believe, is saying is this. Both Galilee and Judea are supposed to be where Jews live. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. John 1 already said that, verse 12. So what Jesus is saying is this, here was Judea, they rejected me. Galilee, they reject me. But Samaria, where I preached the gospel, they embraced me. My own, a prophet does not have honor in his own country. I know we, we talk about a lot of times, when we get saved, we go back to our own family, guess what, no one really listens to us. Hey, we know you, don't, don't come and preach to us. We know you. So we kind of use that. But Jesus is clearly saying here, neither Judea nor Galilee welcomed him. So what does this mean, verse 45? When he arrived in Galilee, they welcomed him. It was a superficial welcome. How so? 
Because, look at the next part of verse 45. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. They saw a lot of signs and miracles. So they were welcoming Jesus in the sense, hey, this guy can benefit us. That's superficial. They wanted what Jesus could offer, but they never really wanted Jesus. They wanted the gifts, not the giver. That's the idea. Go back to John 2 for a minute. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. He said, Now while he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus, at the Passover festival, Passover, the Jews from Galilee also would go there. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But we know that was not true belief. That was false belief. How so? Look at verse 24 and 25. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. It was superficial. They just followed Jesus for the signs. In fact, in John 6, Jesus will confront them again and again. He says, you follow me because your stomachs are full. That's why you're following me. You're not following me because you really love me. You're not following me for the sake of your sins being forgiven. In fact, that becomes even more clear. If you look at verse 48, when Jesus rebukes them saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So that is why I'm stating that Jesus was not welcome in Judea and whatever welcome they gave in Galilee was a superficial welcome. Verse 46, so he goes to Cana. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And then it says there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Capernaum and Cana are about 18 miles apart. And uh, this man is in uh, Capernaum which is kind of like the official headquarters for Jesus in his Galilee ministry, royal officials were not exactly told if he's, if he's a Jew or if he's a Gentile. We know he worked for Herod there. Some people kind of assumed that he was a Gentile. It's, but the text never really says that to us because even Jews were in the employment of uh, uh, some of the, uh, some of these royal courts. But there was a man and his son lay sick. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now what prompted this man to come to Jesus? Was this man a believer? Was this man had a faint belief that Jesus was the Messiah? The text does not say that again. Some people, some commentators again say that he had a little bit of faith in Jesus in terms of saving faith and his faith progresses. The text doesn't say that. At this stage, all the text says is, this man heard about Jesus. And obviously he would have heard, because Cana is so close by, he would have heard what Jesus did there. Of course, people from Jerusalem would have returned and said, hey, this guy from Nazareth, looks like he was doing a lot of things there. So he would have heard. And keep in mind, the man's child is sick. We don't know how old this boy is, but the boy is close to death. The boy had fever. The verse later in um, verse 52 tells us he had fever but this was something that was very close to death and if you are a father or a mother your child is like that what would you do? you're desperate you want healing you'd go you'd go that's what this man is doing he's going hoping Jesus would do something he's heard a lot about this rabbi he's making a lot of news so he's going there He's going and imploring him. Continual begging. 
and he is not coming initially he is not coming to Jesus with saving with the desire to be saved from his sin how so? look at Jesus' response unless you people that includes him though in some translations I have it as you the you is plural not just the official but everyone else too unless you people see signs and wonders Jesus told him you will never believe he is rebuking this man you don't want to believe me for who I am but you want to believe only what you can get out of it you are not coming to me the real way you ought to come you come to me only when you have trouble it's like you cry to God only when you have a problem when things are going well you like to keep God at a distance oh you, you, you don't really talk bad about God but just keep him at a distance we don't want too much God it's kind of, he bothers me keep him at a good arm's length that's what it is but the royal official verse 49 says he's not stopping he says sir come down before my child dies he is desperate he wants he doesn't care about the rebuke he wants one thing he wants healing of his son notice what Jesus says this is a long distance miracle this is not usually the way Jesus does it's always he is there physically but he does a long distance miracle go Jesus replied your son will live or your son lives he's, obviously your son is living but the idea is he's not going to die he will continue living physically so to speak your son will live and Jesus can do that because chapter 5 verse 21 he says for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it he's the lord of life physical life obviously as well as spiritual life he says I'll I'm giving this. Your son lives. Go. Go. Almost like Elijah in 1 Kings 7.23 telling the woman there, your son will live. Your son will live. End of verse 50 says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man believed Jesus' word. Again, is this saving faith? Can't be sure. Because all he's looking at is, okay, he has said this, I can get no further. He has said it. He is obviously not coming. But he's told me, go. Your son is going to live. So, I'm going to believe that my son is going to be healed. And I'm leaving. Again, does not point to saving faith explicitly. Go. So he goes. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his household believed. Now, through this sign that Jesus gave, this man comes to saving faith. You see how Jesus operates. Even though he says in verse 48, you're coming to me only for this, but still, in his mercy, in his compassion, what does Jesus do? He still heals this boy. In this case, God's will was this boy to be healed. He heals. And look at the official's response. That is the right response. That's the right response. He believed. Notice we read in John 20, 
verses 30 and 31, what's the function of a sign? So that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah and by believing you will have everlasting life. So the purpose of God giving a sign in this case was that people would believe. And this man did believe. He saw the sign and he said, yes, I just don't want the gift alone. Now the gift actually points me to the giver and I want the giver. Because this gift, this physical life of this young boy, he still died. He's not alive today. At best he would have got 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. That's all. But what this man and his family received is for eternity. That's the idea. He went for physical healing. But Jesus gives him spiritual healing. That's the idea of a sign. Why does God give the court these signs for us? So that you may believe. So that you may believe that He is the Messiah. He is God's sent lamb who took your place on that cross and who died and rose again and offers everlasting life. And verse 54 says, This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now the question that we should pause and ask ourselves is this. How does this sign prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Because Elijah raised people from the dead. He could just be an Elijah. What should make you and me think, or the Jews of that day to whom John wrote, and of course the Gentiles too, what should prompt them to think that he is different from Elijah and that he is the Messiah? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. If you're following the church Bible, I believe it's page 702. Page 702, Isaiah 25. Keep in mind when you're reading the Gospel of John, or even any of the other Gospels, when you see a miracle, when you see something, make sure, go back to the Old Testament and see if you can connect something. Especially in the Gospel of John, because every sign is to point that Jesus is Messiah. And in this case, What's going to point the Old Testament scriptures? Look at verse 20, chapter 25 and verse 6. Typically the Old Testament uh, readers would know that this is a picture of what will happen when the Messiah comes. Look at verse 26, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Just stop right there. What was the first miracle done, done in Cana? Wine. Do you see that here? You remember when we went through John 2, we said the Messiah, when he comes, he will set up his kingdom, wine will flow. What that means is that prosperity, joy. And John is having this in mind when he's writing. He's thinking, verse, verse 6 here, there's going to be on, on, that, on this mountain, the Jerusalem mountain, when the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom. Banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. Verse 7, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. And then look at verse 8. That's what I want to draw your attention to. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Look at verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away all the tears from all the 
faces. This man came with tears, this royal official. Because his son is at the point of death. Maybe that was the only son he had. We don't know. We're not told. But even if you have ten sons, every son is precious. Every daughter is precious. The man comes with tears. It's of course the physical life. is going to die. Death and the fear of death brings a lot of sorrow to us. And Jesus wiped this man's tears. Of course it's temporary, I understand that. But it is a foretaste to give a preview of the coming attraction. What's the coming attraction on that day when I come, the Messiah come to set up my kingdom? Death will be abolished. Tears will be wiped away. No more death. No more sorrow. And I, the Messiah, have come. I'm banishing disease from Palestine. I'm banishing death. So to speak, to give you an idea, I give life. I'm Lord over death. That's the idea. That's what the second sign is intended to do. Unfortunately, many study Bibles or commentaries miss this point. The sign is not just for the man to have this healing. You've got to read within the purpose of John's Gospel. A sign is to point people to the Messiah. This sign, how does it point to him being the Messiah when he comes in his full glory? This is how it will be. On that mountain, he will land on the Mount of Olives when he comes to destroy the forces of Antichrist and all the unbelievers who surround Jerusalem when he sets up his kingdom. This is how the kingdom will be. Joy. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more death. Because death has been swallowed up. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, fast forward a few books please, from John. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up from verse 54. Has Isaiah 25 in mind when he writes these verses, look at verse 54. He talks about this whole chapter 15 is about the resurrection. That we will have this resurrection because Jesus rose again. Look at verse 54. He says, when the perishable, that's this body of ours, this dying body of ours, has been clothed with the imperishable, that's the new body that we will get. And the mortal, this physical body that's going to die, when that's clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where is that saying coming from? Coming from Isaiah 25 and verse 8 that we just read. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So Paul can say, where or death is your victory? Where or death is your sting? From Hosea 13:14. And then he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Sin gets its power from the law that we have broken. But, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus by rising from the dead shows that he is Lord over death and he is the Lord who gives life and by him rising from the dead the sign is this death has been swallowed up in victory. This Messiah abolishes death and because this Messiah abolishes death when we put our faith in this Messiah even though we die we will live. John 11. That's the idea. That's the point of this sign. Did this man understand everything? Perhaps not. But John's motive in writing for you and me is this. That we would understand. That Jesus is the Lord. Not just a physical life. But for spiritual everlasting life. Yes. Sometimes we may go to Jesus for a physical blessing. It could be a physical healing. It could be a broken marriage. It could be employment, it could be money, it could be certain things. 
that are very material in nature. And God, in His mercy and His grace, may grant you that. But not that is the end in itself. That is the means through which you can grab Him. That's the idea. This man came just for physical healing. He was weak in his faith. In fact, he had no saving faith. He just came for a healing. But God in His compassion granted him that healing, but gave him a bigger healing. That's the idea. The sign was for the bigger thing. You need everlasting life. That's the idea. That's the idea. Yes, some people come just based on the word, like the Samaritan woman and the whole village. They believed his word. They heard his word and they came to Christ. There was no miracle Jesus performed in Samaria. None. None. If you go back to verse 42 of John 4, notice what the people say. We no longer believe just because of what you said, not because of your word. We've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Again verse 41, many more became believers because of his word. So it's not that you always need a miracle to come to Christ. But God sometimes may use through His providence. He may grant you a job or a whatever it is. But that's not what you end up. That's the means through which you grab hold of Christ. It's not just the gift itself. It's the giver. It's the giver. That's how you should respond. This man responded rightly. But unfortunately, there are many who just don't respond no matter how many good things God gives to them. John 12, verse 37 gives us a picture of these type of people. John 12, and verse 37. What a sad commentary. What a sad commentary. John 12, 37. Notice, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. Isn't that sad? They saw and saw and saw. Still they did not believe. Now today there are people like that. They taste and taste and taste of so many blessings from God. They have food to eat. Clothes to wear. Wonderful homes to live. Even sometimes good families, good children, good jobs, everything. Still, they keep taking and taking and taking and never bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are like that this morning. God's been extremely good to you. He's given you much. But you still say, no. You say, I'm a Christian. And you think you're good. But when you say you're a Christian, all you really are implying is, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Jew. I'm not an atheist. I just have an identity, religious identity. Because maybe I was born in a Christian home or I go to church or I know about Jesus. That is all you have. Nothing else. Because your heart is still wicked, rebellious and sinful. May I remind you, all these gifts that you receive from Him is so that you would turn to Him in true repentance. Romans 2. Let me point this to you. It says so clearly here, in Romans chapter 2, if you're in John, just move two books forward. That's Romans 2. 
Romans 2. Look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness? That God is, you know, what He's saying is that God has been so kind to you. He's, he's so forbearing, He's so patient. But are you showing contempt? How so? By not realizing that God's kindness, God's goodness is intended to lead you to repentance. Meaning the reason God is so good to you, He gives you food to eat, clothes to wear, takes you to school, gives you a job, does everything is so that you would repent of your sins and turn to Him. God showing His kindness to you. But if you reject God's kindness, all you're left with is to face God's wrath. Look at verse 5. But when you don't repent, this is going to be the outcome. You will only face God's wrath. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. It's an individual punishment each will face. You either take God's kindness, the verses 4 and 5 are pitched against each other in one way. Either God's kindness, you respond to it rightly, or God's wrath. That's the idea. That's the idea of God. Perhaps you can recall in your own life God's been good to you. Even if you recall seriously, you would see out of how many dangers God has led you, how much God has blessed you. Maybe you, your family, whatever it might be. How have you responded? Are you going to be in the category of John 12.37? Or like Romans 2.5? Or are you going to be like this royal official? He responded in true saving faith. He comes to Jesus broken over his sin. That's what true belief is. And he repents. Not like, not like the superficial belief. You know, sometimes even Bible reading can be very superficial. We want to do our daily prayers because we want our day to go well. What a shallow desire. We just do the Bible reading so that my day will be protected. Meaning that we just want the gifts that Jesus offers. We don't come to the scriptures because we love him. We're so selfish in our desires. So shallow. We come to the word. We come to prayer. Not because if I do that, somehow I rub God's back. God's going to rub my back. We come to him because we love him. The gifts are intended for us to grab the giver. To grab the... Have you grabbed this giver? And if you have, continue to believe. And continue to share about him with others. If you have not, why not? This is scary. The wrath of God, it is extremely scary. You have no excuse. You have absolutely no excuse for rejecting Jesus. He is the only one who's conquered death. He's the only one who can give you life. And He wants to. You reject the only means. You're left with nothing to face except the wrath of God. And you will be drinking every drop of His wrath for all eternity because His wrath will never be satisfied because you can never pay the full price. That is why Christ came. Drank every drop from that bucket so that we would not have to face that wrath. So I beg you, as if God were begging through me, I beg you, I plead with you, turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your own thinking. Come to Him. Whatever fears you may have, give it to Him. 
why would you still want to stay in rebellion? Do you want a tragedy to occur before you wake up? Then when you cry, he will not hear. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you humble yourself. Are you truly born again? There is no other kind of Christian. Only one. One who has experienced that new birth. I pray the Spirit of God would bring about that new birth in your heart if that is what is needed. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed at your patience and love towards us. You have every right to send every single one of us to hell. But yet, in your kindness and in your forbearance, in your long-suffering, you are patient. But as Genesis 6 reminds us, the Spirit of God will not keep on fighting and resisting our unbelief forever. At any point, you will withdraw that convicting work. You will give us over to our own sinful desires and then there is no hope. Lord, it is so scary to think that when you just give us over into darkness because we refuse to come to the truth. I pray if there is any, any here this morning, Lord, and I am sure every single one here has tasted your love. The very fact that they are alive is a proof that they have tasted your love. So the question is not if they have received many gifts they have, but all those gifts have not led them to the giver. I pray that you would break their hard hearts, cause them to bow their knee to you, and turn to you in true repentance. Produce that kind of an attitude in their hearts. And for those in whose life you have done that, thank you so much. Even if it was through severe trial you brought us to yourself, it was worth it, Lord. It's better to come to you now. And if the means are through breaking us through trials, it is much better than not come to you and have a good life here on earth. Eat, drink, be merry. But for all eternity, cry out in pain in the fires of hell. Thank you for the trials in our lives. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. Thank you for the trials. Because through trials you draw us closer and closer to yourself. We love you, Lord. Help us to keep on loving you.